You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And this is The Fabulous Invalid. All right. Well, it's just the two of us today, Rob. That's right. Jennifer's off wowing them at the August Wilson Theater. Yes, she is. <laughs> well, we miss you, Jennifer. And yes, uh, we will see you next week. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I had an interesting thing uh, recently when we attended a performance of the terrific Gloria oh a Life. Gloria A Life, the, yes. The play about Gloria Steinem, which is playing at the Daryl Roth Theater in Union Square. It is Fantastic. Highly recommend. However, we were there on a day where they were having some sound problems. And so the play started with no amplification in the sound. It was just the actors' natural voices. And I thought, oh my God, this is fantastic. They're not mic'd. Like they're actually, it's going to be the way it used to be. Not that it's really the way it was ever for me because I think I've always lived in an age of amplification. But I thought, you know, occasionally you see a show and it's not mic'd, um, maybe not necessarily on Broadway. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And then, of course, they took the star, they kind of grabbed the star, uh, Christine Lati, who is unbelievable in She's the show fantastic. Mm-hmm. and uh, they started playing around with what was obviously her mic pack and so there were there was and then you could hear the the mics all click in on the actors and 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 for a moment there it took me i don't know about you it, um, it took me a, a few minutes to adjust to the amplified sound mm. it sounded so strange to me and then mm-hmm. of course a few minutes later it was all evened out but it was so fascinating yeah no it certainly was it that I was struck by it as well. I frequently see shows off Broadway that certainly don't have microphones, um, you know, in, in, in larger spaces or rather in, in smaller spaces. Um, but this was it was it's it, the show is set up in a circle. The audience is sitting in a circle, and it's um, you know inspired by the idea of a talking circle. Um, and and so it it did feel right almost when it started, you know, that 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 they wouldn't use amplification. And I started to lean in and you know it was certainly where we were sitting we were a couple rows back um it was a little hard to hear but there was something kind of beautiful about it like you said the experience of 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 listening to a human voice without any amplification in a theater because it is something that doesn't happen uh too often it reminded me of a story i once read um i'm not going to tell it as well as he did but Harold Prince, the legendary uh, director, producer of Broadway, um, tells a story about how when he was a kid, he just so fondly remembers going to the theater and sitting up in the cheap seats in the balcony. I think he he specifically called out the balcony of the Lyceum Theater, which is uh, one of the oldest theaters on Broadway and has a a pretty steep, high up there balcony. I've sat up there myself before. Um, But how he remembers in an age before microphones, how you would, the show would start and you would have to adjust. The audience as a whole would have to adjust to be able to hear the audience. And at first you wouldn't understand anything that was happening on stage. And then somehow within the first couple of minutes, the human body, the ears, uh, <laughs> the brain would, would adjust to the natural sound and you could hear it crystal clear. 
wow, what a marvelous, marvelous machine we are. Right? I mean, it, you know, it, it reminds me of that recent study that said that, uh, that, that discovered that uh, audiences' uh, heartbeats um, become one. Really? When they're watching a show. Yes, it was, it was a study that was done in the UK last year um, that I, I don't know how they did it, but they were able to measure people's heart rates and they discovered that over the course of a show, the audience becomes one heartbeat. That is unbelievable. <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful you know, thing to discover, right? And it makes sense, right? It, it's about that, that shared experience. Um, and you know, it, it reminds me, you know, like, like I said, of, of, of Harold Prince's story about the theater. I've had similar experiences, um, particularly when I see a show that is not in a, in a vernacular that I'm used to, right? So like going to see Shakespeare or anything that's sort of an old English, I too will have that experience of the first couple of minutes of being like, oh, I don't not really understand this. I'm, like, I'm not following it. Or even a show with, with actors who have very thick accents. I mean, <laughs> a really famous one was last season uh, at Atlantic Theater Company. They did Martin McDonough's play Hangman. And it's funny, a lot of people I know who saw it said, oh, I, I kind of didn't understand it because the actors you know, had, had such thick accents. For me, I sat down knowing that, you know, folks had had that problem. And the first minute of the show, I was like, oh, God, I'm not going to understand a word of this. And then, of course, I had my Harold Prince moment, and it just suddenly clicked. And for the rest of the show, I was able to follow it you know, just like as if they were speaking in, in, with an American accent. I think there was some discussion when Billy Elliot came mm -hmm. to New York that they were going to try to change the accent or make it a little more easy for American audiences to mm -hmm. understand the vernacular or the slang or the North English accent. And I believe they decided they scrapped that idea. I think they, they trusted that audiences mm -hmm. could figure it out. What the hell's wrong with expressing yourself? Being who you want to be. Oh, what you As we are proving, we're smarter than. Well, I don't know if I want to say that, but we're adaptable. <laughs> Our bodies certainly yeah. are smarter. Maybe not. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Yeah. Right. Well, on that happy note, speaking of technical, I think we should jump into our little chat with Natasha Katz. I'm very excited. Let's do it. Our guest this week is legendary theater, dance, and opera lighting designer Natasha Katz. Her roster of over 60 Broadway credits include Tony Award-winning designs for Aida, The Coast of Utopia, Once, The Glass Menagerie, An American in Paris, and Long Day's Journey in Tonight. A native New Yorker and an American wing, American theater wing trustee, Natasha is joining us on her dinner break from the Long Acre Theater, where her latest project, the new musical The Prom, is in previews. Natasha, welcome to The Fabulous Invalid. Thank welcome. you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you here with us tonight. Thank you for making the time. Uh, <laughs> I'm so pleased to be here. It's a great way to spend my dinner break. There you go. Well, thank you. Um, so before we get into the thick of it, I wanted to find out where are you drawing inspiration from right now? Oh. Well, I, uh, well, let's see. I always draw inspiration from other people's shows. I go to the, being on the American Theater Wing, mm. I'm a Tony voter, so I get to go to every single show. 
And uh, I, uh, that, it's an incredible thing to be able to see other artists work. That is a huge inspiration for me. And um, I also draw my inspiration from Mother Nature, mm. I, from uh, nature in this room right now. As I came in here, I thought to myself, oh, the fluorescent light, the pink walls, it just gives you a whole kind of feeling of um, happiness in this room. So I think everywhere I go, I actually, I've said about myself, that I see the light before I see anything else. So I guess the inspiration is 24-7 for me. Well, that would make sense that you see the light before anything else. <laughs> I do. I think I do. And you didn't and then I see with the, the fluorescent lighting? It didn't make you didn't make you want to run? No, you have pink walls, yeah. so you've counteracted it. It's just great. Everybody in this room looks beautiful. Pink is a good color. It Who's is. our lighting designer is the question, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't They were here. Um, when we, when we moved in. Um, you know what flashed through my mind, quite frankly, is I don't understand how you made Bruce Springsteen so magical. In other words, it's just a bare stage and this legend and a guitar and a piano, and somehow you took the lighting and told a whole story that was remarkable. And I, I don't know how you did that. I don't know how that happened, but well, it was brilliant. Thank you, Jamie. I can tell you a couple of things about it. You want me to? Please do. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, one of the things really does have to do with Bruce Springsteen himself. Um, I, uh, also, I believe, as being a lighting designer, that we, we certainly, our first job is to tell a story. So, I mean, it's interesting that you've brought up the kind of, that a story was being told with that. Um, and uh, I think the other thing is that we, uh, the director is the boss, and I have to respond to what the director wants visually and what he, the director is trying to pull together in the whole show. And Bruce Springsteen was the director of this. So he, um, it was really kind of an incredible experience. First of all, he's probably one of the nicest people that I've ever met. He's really incredible. And everybody that works with him has worked with him for over 30 years, and it's a very small group of people. So. It's a, uh, it's a loving little family that's there. And, and you can imagine, if the, t speaking of loyalty that we were talking about earlier, <laughs> yeah. there's so much loyalty between all these people. So there's a kind of sense of trust, which is also amazing. I was a little hands off at the beginning and then thought, OK, this is my chance. We at least have to, let's look, because we can always get rid of the cues. So you put all the cues in, and then he he we I put all the cues in after you know talking to him. And then he came out front. And it was extraordinary what he did. I don't know how to describe it, but the same way he wrote a song is the way he sat next to me visually. And he would say, this is what this song is about. And then he would say, it's kind of like as if there were um, the, uh, you know, we've gone through this sort of dark evening and all of a sudden the sun is shining and it's, um, and you know, we're in a very dark, the set is really dark. Or he would say, um, he never said what, uh, he, he, well, yeah, he would describe what the song was about and then talk about it visually. Within the context of what we had in the theater, he'd look at the stage and recognize that we could only do this or that and then be able to translate it visually. I don't know if that really made sense to you or not, how I describe that, but it was 
that magic moment, I guess, that a songwriter, a playwright, any any creative person has that you can't describe, but he found a way to articulate it to me. And I, and you know, it's one of the greatest jobs I've ever worked on, and I'm really, really proud of my work because I think it exists in the magic of his head, not the magic of mine, in the magic of his is why it's so beautiful. Also, you know, you obviously you found a language together. He found a way to give you his vision or give you his magic, and then you put it on, and then you were able to translate that. That's what I'm hearing you say. No, that's true, and that's the role of a lighting designer. Very often, we're just we're translators from words to the visual. Well, you, I heard you say once that you were you in you were telling stories, that the lighting was telling stories. Is that? Am I misquoting you? Not at all. I believe that. I completely believe that. I really do think that lighting takes an arc, has to, in a theatrical piece, if a story is being told, that the lighting has to do the same thing that an actor is doing, that a uh, playwright is doing. I mean, we start at point A and we go to point Z for a reason, because we're telling a story to an audience that we then eventually want the audience to feel some sort of well, catharsis from, however that catharsis is brought about, and that's the storytelling part of it. So yeah, I do, I do think so, that that is my job. But it's, it strikes me that lighting design is something that um, is one of the later things to happen in the process, because you kind of have to, the show kind of has to be up on its feet, right? You have to be in the space, you know, doing the show before you can actually make the kind of tweaks that you would need to make. Whereas, a, you know, maybe a set designer or costume design along the way, you have more of an opportunity to manipulate. Does that, is that true? Does that track? Or is that just a complete no, naive thought? Not <laughs> one little bit naive. It's, yeah. com- it's absolutely true. I mean, a set designer can show a, a model. model. Right. Costume designer can show sketches. Mm-hmm. Uh, playwright can show the script. Um, actors can audition so that you see what the actor is doing. And we can only do kind of what I'm doing right now with you, or maybe reference photographs or reference art or reference mm-hmm. a video, whatever the visual, or references room if we were doing a play about, um, well, I don't know what the play would be about in this room. <laughs> about, like a about, about a podcast, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> There's one thing that happens... It's even more pressure in commercial theater because every second that we're in the theater costs money. Mm. Um, but it, it happens all the time to lighting designers, which is that we sit down and it's the blank page is the minute that we sit in our seat in front of literally everybody, the actors, the playwright, the director, the stagehands, the costume designer, everybody that's working on the show. And then we create our first, Q. So it could, it's the same. Can you imagine 
50 people looking over your shoulder as you write your your right. review? Or yeah. It's huge pressure is what that is. It, yeah. How it, do you filter it, all that noise out? Well, the, it, well, they're not clamoring at us. I mean, you, you hope, like I, we were talking about before about trust. You know, the mm. whole room is, is doing this together and the director is, is actually working through the show. So it does go back to collaboration. We're all mm -hmm. collaborating on it together. But the, what is, I, I think that most people don't realize that are certainly not in the business and many people in the business is, is that it, it is created at the moment. And it's created together. It's not created in a vacuum at all. How, it takes years of practice to shut it out and not feel this incredible pressure of everybody waiting for you. And when you, when as a lighting designer for me, when I was able to sort of let that go and realize that you're actually part of the team and everybody has to wait for you because it's all for the good of the show, all of a sudden then you feel better. Was there a time you didn't feel like you were part of the team? Uh, definitely, definitely, uh, because of that uh, that very reason. And also, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of directors who don't care about lighting, or there are a lot of um, there. Yeah, it's really I guess probably goes to the director, and if they're always hurrying you up and want you to get going for whatever they're the they have other needs, and they then you feel. I guess you would say marginalized, like, oh, well, <laughs> nobody really cares about the lighting right. for the show. Right. And that's happened, and it's happened on shows on Broadway, and they don't look as good that way, and I also think the story isn't told as well. Mm. I would agree. I mean, yeah. Bruce Springsteen, he's, he's, we have a brick wall in the back, and he's talking about a trip that he took cross-country, and just this little bit of orange light comes up on the back, which uh, is because he's singing about going on a trip, you actually believe that a brick wall is the, um, is the Midwest and he's traveling through mountains. But we all took that time together. Yeah, well, that's why I asked about that, because I'm not a, I'm not a Bruce Springsteen fan. I am now, after seeing that show. However, I didn't, you know, I, I understand that he's a big deal, but he just wasn't, you know, he wasn't for me. Um, and seeing that show, I was so moved by every single moment, every word he sung, every story he told, but I think a huge part of that is your contribution because it really helped bring me into this world and keep me on the journey that he was taking me on. And I just think that that's, in, it's just, it's, it's art at its highest form. And I, I think it's something that people don't, always recognize. Yeah, thank you. So. Certainly, I mean, I, I would agree. I, I think that lighting is so underappreciated because it, it's sort of taken for granted that you know, we're able to see what we're seeing at a very basic level right. you know, because of so much art and craft that has gone into it that in a way, you know, if it's done right, you almost don't notice it. Right, because it's 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 part of the bloodstream of, of yeah, the think, show. I think that is true. Right? You know, that used to bother me that when people would say that. Right. Yeah. Say, I mean, Wait I wonder minute, what about me? But right. now I can. I really, really believe that even if the lights are flashing, they're flashing in your eyes. It doesn't mean that the people are that the audience is noticing it. If we're all on the same page, mm. actually, something interesting happened with Casey Nick Law on the prom, which is that it part it takes place in a it takes place in a school in Indiana, and. Um, the set is kind of uh, like, I don't know, high school kind of orangey. And uh, when I started to light it, the orange took a certain color really beautifully. And it was, it was 
stunning to look at. And then Casey came to me and he said, it's too pretty because these kids are in high school. And we yeah. have a story to tell, which is about the, because I, I don't want to tell what the story of the, of the piece is about, but it's you know the arc again of a young girl and she's starting out with some really hard times. So to, in this particular case, who have made her world too beautiful, you would have felt like, well, what's she complaining about? She's <laughs> in this beautiful gym, it's fantastic. Yeah. And then when I switched it from this warm color to this kind of cool, fluorescent-y feeling, it changed the complete dynamic of how we were looking at the girl. All of a sudden, it felt like she was desperate, unhappy, because she says she has a song where she wants to get out of there, and you understand that she wants to get out of there. I mean, I wish I could find a way, if anybody listens to this <laughs> podcast with a lighting designer, which I always wonder if they would, if to explain like the power mm -hmm. of something like that emotionally in the theater, because um, I, I was even... I was amazed by it, yeah. that it changed what the plot. Did that make any sense? Absolutely, You yeah. are explaining it very well. And, and, and I think most audience members couldn't articulate it, but they true. would feel it. Or know it. Or know, or it. know right. that that's what's right. happening. Well, you that's know, you should, you should pitch to, uh, to the, um, the, the theater wing or whoever. You know, at the Tony Awards one year, they did a demonstration of um, orchestration. Because that's another thing, that's another art form that I think a lot of people don't understand. What's, what's an orchestrator do, right? Yeah. So they played the tune on a piano, and then they played the full you know, orchestra, right? And you, you witnessed in real time you know, what an orchestrator does, how they flesh out the music to make it what they hear, you know, what the audience hears. I, I'd love for them to do something like what you're describing. To, but before the Lighting Design Award, uh, do a demo of, of a scene, you know, with, with a certain oh. lighting design, and then do the same scene, only thing that's changed is the lighting. Right? Oh, that's a nice, that's actually a great idea. Right, or make it a video and put it online, you know, because I think that it would really give people a real insight into, into what you do, you know. Yeah, no, that actually um, is and how And how essential idea. it is to, to storytelling. You speaking of orchestrations, also in the show, The Prom, mm -hmm. the lighting was a certain way, and then when the orchestrations came in, which are, um, oh, I, I would call them youthful. What's going on? Nick's got a promposal all planned out for Kaylee. She's gonna freak out. Since TV football, I've been adored. Big man on campus, but you're so bored. My life was perfect, but so routine. I prayed for someone to intervene. Then something new happened and turned my life around entirely. And that's just you happened. And look what happened to me. Go to prom with me, Once again, it changed what the lighting was because the lighting had to had to, to kind of have a kind of zip to it that it didn't have. So we we added a lot of the light started to change more because there was a drum hit, bam, and we took the we the lighting would all of a sudden change wow. because we didn't have those drum hits right. when somebody was just playing on a rehearsal piano. So your work changes throughout the preview process, like everything else. Oh, it completely changes. We had our first audience last night, and they told 
uh, the, uh, the director and the actors a lot, but they told me a lot too. There was a great lighting designer. His name was Tom Skelton. He had done, oh, I don't know, I guess he died about 20 years ago, but he's done, he had done so many shows on Broadway. He said he started to light on the first preview. Wow. Yeah, I know. Wow. So he'd do what I did, which is light the show, but still the audience tells you so much about kind of how long you can let um, you can let something last. So I might change how long a light cue takes or how short it takes. This is that's this is really hard to describe to an audience, but the once once an audience comes in, it changes everything. Well, you know, it's interesting. We started the, the podcast by talking about um, a, a moment, a particular moment that you loved. I know you didn't do the design for the show, but Carousel last season, at the end of Act One, Billy Bigelow finishes soliloquy. And there was this moment after he finished the song in complete silence where he's just breathing heavily on stage and then the light went out. Oh, and you just gave me chills. I, I got chills thinking about it, right? There and you go. The timing of that, every time I saw it, and I saw that show a couple times, the timing of that light cue to me was so brilliant and so effective. And that was, you know, certainly 100% the lighting designer responding to, you know, certainly the director had imagined the moment, but the timing of it, right? It had to be definitely precisely, and if it was too soon or too late, the moment would have been totally different. Definitely, right? and definitely. I, I lived for it every time I saw that show, and I would just sit there, like you know, and it was so effective. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a perfect example. And that's the kind of thing that you know, perhaps most audience members wouldn't pick up on, you know. But the more shows you see, the more you know, theater you're exposed to, you know, you start to pick up on the more technical things that um, really just make the show successful. Yeah. Than what they are. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, stepping back to the beginning of your career, um, what made you want to get involved in, in lighting design to begin with? Is it something that you've always been interested in, or you just sort of fell into it? Or <laughs> mm, I wasn't always interested in it, actually. I, it's it's I, such a specific, you know, medium. Um, I, uh, I, just, I grew up in New York City, like you said at the beginning <laughs> of this, and all I ever wanted to do was work in the theater, mm. I, I think from the day I was born. So... Um, what uh, uh, what happened was, uh, um, I, I really wasn't that interested in it. I wasn't that interested in it in, in college. And then um, uh, they had an internship program at the college I went to, Oberlin College, where you could get a full semester's credit to work with somebody. And I, um, th uh, through a friend, uh, got an internship with Roger Morgan, who was a lighting designer, and he was lighting, I remember Mama, Richard Rogers' last mm -hmm. musical with Leave Ullman, and I was able to go out of town and and watch him in the craft of lighting, and then I, and then I was hooked. So, wow. uh, and you know, life, it's changed so much now because they have so many lighting programs mm -hmm. in these schools, and a lot of the assistants that work with me have been lighting since they're in ninth grade, eighth and ninth grade, because they have them in their high schools. We didn't have anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I was not born <laughs> wanting to be a lighting designer. No, it's interesting, though, the path that, you know, how, how you discovered it. And I think for me that it really was essentially on the job training I and I learned on Broadway because I started with I Remember Mama and then right after that I started working as an assistant I worked with somebody named Marsha Madera who worked on a number of Tommy Toon shows and then and then as the years went on I started to work with Tommy Toon and I worked with Jules Fisher he was another mentor of mine yeah. Roger Morgan Jules Fisher so watching these uh, uh, and I just I 
I just soaked it in. Every day that I was there, I was happy to be there. I once <clears throat> asked Roger, I said, why me? And he said, because you showed up every day. <laughs> because a lot of interns don't. They get bored at a certain point. That's good advice, and they too. Leave. Absolutely. Everyone. Isn't yeah. it? Anyone. <laughs> yeah, just you've got to show up. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I watched a, a featurette that the um, American Theatre Wing had prepared about lighting design, speaking of videos online, uh, in preparation for this interview. And um, you pointed out something that I had always sort of thought in the back of my mind, but had never articulated. And that is that in, in the lighting design world, there's actually a great tradition of women being oh, yes. leaders in the field. That is true. And, you know, theater obviously has made great strides, but it's like most industries has historically been dominated by men. Um, and yet Gene Rosenthal was sort of the pioneer of, That's right. of uh, the lighting plot, right? And a major um, force in, in the history of lighting. Um, but even as a kid, you know, I was obsessive about, about theater. So I paid attention to the, you know, the, the folks in the credits and certainly your name was one that I came across a lot, but also Peggy Eisenhower and mm -hmm. uh, Theron Muser. Musser. Musser. It is Musser. Um, you know, who, who famously did a chorus line and Dreamgirls. You know, there are so many women who have been in the forefront of lighting design. I wonder, um, can you explain that? Is there, is, is there a reason why or is it just chance or? You know, I, oh, about why women yeah. were at the beginning. Because the irony of all of it is, and I, I may have said this to you, because know, I used to make a joke when I had first started out, because there were so many women lighting designers, mm -hmm. which is that's why we're so underpaid. Oh. <laughs> well, there you go, right? But uh, what's happened now is that there are, on Broadway at least, and actually it's not just Broadway, but there are more male lighting designers and female mm. lighting designers now, mm. and everybody's trying to change that, but it did get, it did change in the last it's 20 years. a pendulum, years. yeah. Yeah, the pendulum definitely swung swung away from that. Yeah. But, the, you, I, you know, the idea always was, and people used to say that the reason why there are so many women lighting designers is has to do with, you know, very stereotypical ideas of we're more emotional, we're more, um, we, you know, as a lighting designer, you have to kind of take the whole room and put your arms around the room and stay Get calm. mothering involved? Well, maybe that's the word, yeah. <laughs> it does, in a way. Yeah, I think that that's that was the reason then for sure mm. that uh, it's it was the emotional side of it. Yeah. And uh, but I don't you know I don't know I don't know why then and I don't know why the pendulum swung. swung again. Well, we now. all benefit from it, yeah. however it happened. Yeah. I did have another technical question, and that is, you're let's say you're lighting a scene, and it's a like a single lamp on a table or a single wall sconce or a darkly lit room is what you're supposed to be lighting. How many lights actually go in to creating that darkness? Um, that's, um, that's a good question because you're right. We need light to create the darkness. Mm -hmm. But, uh, well, it depends on each show, but very often uh, if there's just one light, but you still need to see the actor's face, mm -hmm. we have to hang a couple of other lights so that the actor's face also gets lit along with it. So if it were one light on a table, I'd probably have two theatrical lights, one um, behind them to sculpt them a little bit, and then one just grazing across their, their face. And sometimes we hide them inside of the, the table lamp 
so that light is looks like it's emanating from the same. But it's actually hitting the actor or that's right, or a painting or something <laughs> else that needs to be illuminated, even though it's supposed to be dark. That's that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. See, these are things we don't know. I think this stuff's fascinating. So fascinating. I really do. Yeah. And I just uh, reread Jean Rosenthal's book mm. for, uh, well, because I did Hello, Dolly, and she had lit it originally, and I wanted to read everything. And she has a wonderful, uh, well, all the whole book's wonderful, but she said the lighting designer's best friend is the makeup artist. Mm. And I think that we forget that a lot, too. Uh, we had um, we had a little moment on The Prom where one of the actors was kind of, she has kind of green, cool skin mm. and looked kind of green compared to everybody else. Huh. So if there's one actor in a group of 20 actors, I can't make that actor look warm. So I went to the makeup designer and she said, no problem, I'll just warm up the foundation a little bit. So sometimes it's not, sometimes it's not us. And we worked hard with Bette Midler to make up and, um, and me to get a certain feeling of, I mean, I feel like she kind of glowed from within, and that was the collaboration between a makeup designer and a lighting designer. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I think it's I would not have known. Well, I think Joan Marcus told us uh, that her best friend working on a show is oftentimes the lighting designer. So that's the person that she works with very closely. Oh, she yeah, and she's so wonderful to work with, too. Yeah. But she, yeah, definitely. So that's absolutely true. Everybody pairs up in different ways. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a team so, sport, theater is. And there's no <laughs> question that it's a team sport. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we let you go, I, I wanted to ask you a question about um, Open Doors, because you're an Open Door mentor. And uh, Open Doors is a mentoring program through TDF, where theater professionals share their time and expertise with students. Rob is going to do a little deeper dive into that uh, a little bit later. But my question for you is, what have you learned about yourself in this process of mentoring students? Oh, that's so, wow, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm not there for myself, but after having done it, this is my fifth year doing it. The first, every single year, I, I honestly, it's, it's a gift to me that I take these kids to the theater. What is extraordinary about working with them is that they are so open. You know, we tend, we've all seen so many shows now. So we talk about these shows and we say, oh, well, you know, the something or other wasn't as, uh, the character's arc wasn't quite as extensive, but so I wish it had been or something like that. <laughs> and the kids are like, they come from all sorts of different directions. And then I have to respond to them, and um, we're you know now we're, our generations are further and further apart. So uh, there's a lot of things that they're thinking that I never in a million years would have thought of. So they then make me not only have to articulate things, but I feel like I'm 16 years old again, and I'm looking at a show from the eyes of a 16-year-old, and it is so liberating. And so incredible. It is, yeah, I hate to say, I'm also getting something out of it. Well, absolutely. It sounds like that's something that you take with you to other shows even when you're not with your students. Like that viewpoint, do you have there, do you have them in your head when you're seeing shows even when they're not in the room with you? Absolutely, that's, and it's so interesting you say that. I absolutely do. It has made me a better theater goer. Uh, mm. Less judgmental, no question about it, less judgmental and more open. And I um, do try to, sometimes I say to myself, oh, well, what would those kids think of, of this mm. moment? See, that's fantastic. 
everybody's getting something incredible out of that program. I think that's beautiful. Oscar um, Hammerstein wrote in The King and I, right? By your, if you're a teacher, by your students, you are taught. Uh, yeah, that that's exactly, uh, there you go. Right. That's, ex so, that's, so and we've got to, to be taught to hate and fear. All I mean, that that's all part of it too. Mm -hmm. And there are wonderful kids too, mm -hmm. on top of it all. Five years, that's a long time doing it. Yeah, I would like to do it forever, yeah. quite honestly. Well, do. Okay. Amazing. Um, you might have answered this already, but we always ask everybody, what is that show that did it for you? Uh, uh, it can, like, oh, that I saw? That you saw. It doesn't have to be a Broadway show. It can be anything that made you want to work in the theater. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, my God. I don't know. I... Honestly, I swear, I must have seen something in my mother's womb. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what. But she took you to I, a show when she was pregnant? from the day I was born, it's all I ever wanted to do. I don't even remember what my first show was. I, 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 I saw Ethel Merman in... Annie, get your gun. Annie, get your gun. Yeah, thank you. At Lincoln I'd, Center, right? In 66. Yeah. Yeah. Is that when it was? I think it was 1960. Oh, was that wow. Granny, get your gun? <laughs> oh, I believe is what they might <laughs> have they called it. it? Yeah. Not that she wouldn't it. have been wonderful. That's not what I mean. My um, 12th grade graduating from high school present was to see, they gave me, uh, I was, I saw eight shows in one week. Oh, wow. Eight yeah, shows in every, one week? Well, yeah. That's a I great every, gift. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy. Yeah, so I, I don't know. Uh, so it's always been there. Yeah, it just, it has always been there. It's a lucky thing of me. growing up in New York City. I think it's, uh, you know what, I think that's what makes it me different than a lot of people. Anybody mm -hmm. who's grew, who grew up in New York, we've been able to go to the theater if we're interested yeah. in it in our whole lives. Did you ever second act? When you were younger? No, I never did. But we did have those twofers then. I mean, oh. the theater was it was fifty cents or seventy five yeah. cents. I sound like I was born in nineteen hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I wasn't. But it the was really shot cheap. Up quite really a bit. Have. Yeah. In, in 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 the recent years, but yeah. um, well. That's all I've Amazing. got. Yeah, well, I think we've got to get you back to the Long Acre Theater. That's I, true. I'm off to review a show. a show to light. So. I do. I have a show to light. <laughs> thank you so much for coming down. Thank yeah, you, thank, thank you. you for having me. here with You May Be Wondering. In addition to her full-time schedule as one of the most cutting-edge and in-demand lighting designers in the business, Natasha Katz is also a Wendy Wasserstein project mentor for the Theater Development Fund. You may be wondering, I've never heard of that program. Well, that's why I'm here to tell you about it. Taking a step back, the Theater Development Fund, or TDF as it's more commonly known, is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to bringing the power of the performing arts to everyone. You probably know them best as the folks behind the famous TKTS ticket discount booths in Times Square and all around New York City. Now celebrating their 50th anniversary, TDF also does amazing work behind the scenes to sustain live theater and dance, 
by engaging and cultivating a broad and diverse audience and eliminating barriers to attendance. The genesis of their mentor project came from playwright Wendy Wasserstein. In 1996, she wanted to know if theater was still relevant to young people. And so she partnered with TDF to take eight high school students to see six shows that season. Afterward, they'd have pizza and they'd talk about what they saw. That experiment was so revelatory for all those involved that it expanded into an ongoing program sponsored by TDF. First called Open Doors, and now known as the Wendy Wasserstein Project, in memory of its founder who passed away in 2006. Every season, 24 top theater professionals serve as mentors, attending shows with students and sharing their expertise and insights. The project received a 2012 Tony Honor for Excellence in the Theater, the same honor that was given to Joan Marcus. Each year, nearly 200 students from 24 participating New York City schools see over 100 shows through the Wendy Wasserstein Project, no doubt changing a few lives in the process. As the final part of each outing, students prepare written journal reflections on the experience. Here are just a few from 2016, in their own words. After a performance of Fun Home, Cassandra wrote, throughout the musical, I kept remembering all the things my parents have to sacrifice for me, and all the times I needed someone to accept me for who I was. Because of this musical, I have learned that acceptance comes from within. You have to feel comfortable with yourself and embrace who you are. That's the way to true acceptance. After a dance performance, Mahua wrote, it was magical that suddenly the world turned quiet as it started, and I felt the beautiful piano had divided me from the outside noise and brought me into a wonderland. I want to say, the show was like pure water. It washed my heart. If you ever needed validation that the performing arts are a vital pillar of our society, a stirring outlet for creative expression and a horizon-expanding platform for the exchange of ideas, well, there you have it. The novelist Philip Pullman once said, Children need to go to the theater as much as they need to run about in the fresh air. They need to hear real music played by real musicians on real instruments as they need food and drink. If you deprive children of shelter and food and exercise, they die visibly. If you deprive them of art and music and story and theater, they perish on the inside and their starvation doesn't show. Thanks to TDF, the late Wendy Wasserstein, and theater professionals like Natasha Katz, more New York City children have the opportunity to be nourished by the arts. Jamie here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid. And listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Podbean, and our website. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. It's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 